Good afternoon, everybody. This is Pastor Adam. Hey, hope you're doing super well. Um, glad to have you with us on this week's deep dive. We're going to talk about the last three chapters of Esther, and then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the beginning of the brackets that we have done here at Old Stone. For those of you who may not attend, starting in May, we as a congregation figured out 32 topics that we might be interested in having a sermon on. And I said, y'all pick. And so we did a, a bracket, split it down, got it from 32 to 16 to 8 to 4. And so for the next four weeks, I will be preaching on the topics that uh, were selected by the congregation. This week is the book of Amos. It uh, was battling against um, revelations in the final battle there. So uh, it's uh, exciting. And, and to be honest with you, Amos is my favorite book of scripture. And so to be able to spend uh, oh, you know, all that time on being able to preach that, well, it makes me really excited. But before that, I want to talk a little bit about uh, things that I after Sunday would have uh, maybe gone back or things that I want to clarify a little bit. And, um, you know, Sunday was, it was an interesting, interesting week uh, to, to preach. I think that, and, and I mentioned this in, in my Facebook posting, you know, when I, uh, when we record the podcast, I post it onto the old stone Facebook page. And then I also post it to my own personal page for folks if they're interested. And one of the things that I mentioned is I think that there's a real issue a lot of times um, when we have tragedies happen like El Paso and Dayton happening within 24 hours. And, you know, I use the word fetishize and I, I think that's actually the appropriate term where um, whether we as young clergy or people who, um, you know, associate with clergy, sometimes we can fetishize this idea that, well, every time that there is some sort of terrible tragedy, our job must be to tear up the sermon that we've spent hopefully hours preparing, uh, that we've been thoughtful on, and just start uh, preparing something on Sunday morning in light of the tragedy. And yeah, sometimes you have to do that. Um, but you have to be thoughtful, I think. Otherwise, and I said this earlier, otherwise you almost become a theological ambulance chaser that every time something happens, we point to that thing and say, okay, now see, and I think what happens then is we lose our ability to have deeper, more meaningful wells to pull from one tragedy happens. Um, if all we're doing is running around from, from one thing to the other and trying to make theological and perhaps political claims on that, we end up losing people, I think, in the long run. I really wrestled with it, certainly the night, Saturday night when I went to bed and had known about El Paso, and then Sunday morning, and keep in mind, for those of you who aren't around here, Columbus is only about an hour from Dayton, and so most of us know somebody in the area. So, you know, you, you almost have to trust your your um, pastoral instinct at times to say, this might be a time when uh, I need to say something. Now, what I think the the downside of that can be is that you it's really hard, I think, if you're planning something, unless for some reason things line up so perfectly that you're able to, without a whole lot of difficulty, um, lead into the text. You're almost inevitably going to lose a portion of the text. And for me as a pastor, I think that the text needs to lead. You can, obviously with the lectionary, you can pick text. Ideally, you're weaving texts together to make meaning out of it. But I'm not a big proponent of 
moving thematically and then just using scripture as window dressing. And so I, I want to play a portion of the sermon because I think at the end of the day, this was the point I was trying to make. This is what I thought was was most important. And so, um, you know, this is the this is the thesis here. This happened right about four minutes into the sermon. We're all members of our ship. And in some ways, we are responsible for what happens on our ship. We have identities, friends, that shape who we are, and they are complex, and they are layered, and they change, but they are a part of who we are. At this moment, in our analogy, we are all riders on a ship that some doofus is looking to sink. So I tried to use um, as a complement to the three chapters, which, as I mentioned last week, are incredibly violent and are incredibly difficult to kind of go through. It seems that the the end of the day, you know, the king is saying, well, I can't really fix your problem, but you can go kill the people who, who are going to try to kill you. And, and then everybody celebrates at the end. You know, I tried to use the um, the parable about the man who decides to sink a ship because he owns the piece of cabin and decided he wanted to put a hole in the ship and saying that we're all responsible to the stories of one another. And in some way, I wanted to make the argument too, that violent chapters like Esther eight through 10, we are also responsible to in some way. That doesn't mean that we would do the same thing, but we're responsible in in the sense that we need to appreciate that when there is violence, when there is trauma, we can't ignore it or, try to reconcile it as something that's insignificant, which I think is oftentimes uh, the way that we do things. And in fact, right now, you know, if you if you listen to the stories that are happening out, out of El Paso, out of Dayton, you know, everybody is trying to find a way to justify what happened, um, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's mental illness, whether it's, um, you know, other things that have come out, you know, there was one representative who said it was video games and and uh, gay marriage and all these sort of things. And you know, we can um, we can argue the validity of any of those things. But what I worry about is, especially with some of these, what we end up doing is pushing out the shared responsibility of humanity to take these things on and to understand them and to reconcile them. Uh, oftentimes, I think it helps us feel better in moments of of tragedy and deep trauma to disassociate ourselves with it. Um, especially I think when people start talking about mental illness, we're a society that values uh, our ability to think so much that when we start talking about mental illness, what we're not talking about in my understanding is I hear folks, we're not talking about schizophrenia. We're not talking about bipolar issues. We're, we're talking about some sort of derangement that that's the answer. The problem is, is that folks who do have mental illness then are stigmatized and it actually doesn't get to the root of the issue. Uh, In fact, all it does is actually belittle the individuals and the circumstances that cause uh, these issues. Um, And for me, and, and what I was trying to, I think, in essence, get out of Esther 8 through 10 and, and how we need to engage it. And also I think how to think critically through um, the issue of guns, the issue of um, what do we do with mass shootings, is many of these many of these things end up coming back to for me a fundamental question of human value. And so, what does it mean for an individual like the El Paso shooter to write a manifesto that demeans um, 
individuals that are coming uh, up from Mexico. Um, you know, the individual chose this Walmart because of the fact that there were multiple people coming to and from the border. Um, what does it mean for an individual best that we can figure in Dayton uh, was angry about not being able to get into a club and had a history of violence. Um, and so decided to take it upon himself within 30 seconds to kill nine people. Well, it seems to point to both of those, the same thing, which is there was a complete uh, disregard of the worth of the people on the other side of the weapon. And so what does it mean for us as Christians who are uh, created in the image of God, who were created by God? These are our fundamental premises to ignore human value. Well, I think it actually means that we are perhaps sinning more than just about any other way because we are looking at God's creation and we are saying that it doesn't matter, that God's image itself is insignificant, so insignificant that it is worth um, destroying it, uh, removing it from God's creation. So for me, I wish that we were spending more time on that conversation. Now, most of the time that conversation can't happen because we, we aren't going to get to that level. And we're going to deal with the symptoms and we're not going to deal with the underlying cause. And part of the problem is if you really start to dig into the underlying cause of human value, you really have to start asking deeper questions around you know, how do we measure human value now? Uh, well, oftentimes, you know, the first thing somebody will tell you about themselves, they won't tell you um, what they love or they won't tell you about their faith. They'll tell you their job. So we index them based on their economic value, uh, not, not their worth as a beloved child of God, which in and of itself is infinite and beautiful, uh, more than whatever we will do uh, in our lives. And so I think as, as Christians, well, and I really think that this goes beyond Christianity. I think any, any religion ideally is, is tackling this question of human value and human significance and human worth. I think Abrahamic traditions, we will pin it on being created in the image of God. And as Christians, we we are more specific around, you know, we see this be created by in the image of God and then redeemed through Jesus Christ. And so for us, there needs to be some of that conversation, especially when we have tragedies like we've had over the last week, is to say, where is our society devaluing humanity? And so, yes, I think white supremacy and I want to be unequivocal about this. I, I think you know white supremacy at its core is devaluing others who don't fit into the dominant culture that is white. And again, like like the quote I used for Abraham Heschel, we might not all be guilty of that, but all of us, no matter who we are, are responsible to continue to work against that. Um, the end of the day, issues of violence, issues like what happened on, on Sunday is ultimately not about the tools, not about how it happened. I really could care less, I think, theologically or honestly politically about what your perspective is on gun control, because at the end of the day, that doesn't seem to be the primary issue. What seems to be the primary issue is actually how are you valuing human life? How are you expressing that in your day-to-day -day life? Um, and so then I think through that lens, you can answer better questions and more interesting questions about, well, what does it mean to um, own weapons? What does it mean to utilize them? What do you do with some of those other issues? What does it mean in scripture to deal with issues of violence? What does it mean um, to read uh, 
a fundamental value of life within issues of violence. And again, that's where I think the value of considering issues of trauma is, is incredibly important when it comes to um, books like Esther and a lot of the Old Testament. Uh, I think reading it through a lens of trauma is super important. And for that, I, I do want to thank uh, Dr. Cuellar, one of uh, my Old Testament professors, uh, for really helping to set apart that sense of what does it mean to read um, texts through a lens of trauma through people who have been torn from their home. And actually, what's kind of great is this is a this is a convenient segue actually into the book of Amos. And like I said, the book of Amos is, is really one of my favorite books uh, in scripture. Um, and so to give you a background, Amos is a farmer, he manages fig trees in the southern kingdom of Judah. So this is after the kingdoms have split. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And he lives in the town of Tekoa, which is not too far from the border of, um, of Israel. God called him to actually go from the south to the north to prophesy, which is a unique thing to Amos too. There aren't very many folks who do this sort of, you know, they're going to go to the other kingdom to prophesy. And this was during the time of Jeroboam II, uh, which if, you, um, if you're interested, we're talking 1 Kings 12, right around that time to give you some context. And kingdom of Israel was incredibly wealthy, was well-to-do, uh, but according to Amos, was incredibly corrupt as well was willing to sell people out into debt slavery and then not give them the justice to come restored. Many folks were in trouble, except for what seemed to be an elite ruling class who were building expensive, lavish homes, were enjoying um, wine and drink. I mean, they sound like the elite of any time and any place um, who were just getting their fill. And what Amos saw was, well, there are people who are poor that are being ignored and the party is over and God is going to judge us. And then you continue in and where we're going to actually spend our time on Sunday is Amos five. We're going to read the whole thing. It's kind of a, uh, it's sort of a peak of what's going on. And he tears into everything that's going on in Israel and says, God is done. And one of the passages that was read at my ordination was about God saying, because you haven't done the things that you're supposed to, I don't care about your, I hate, you know, he talks about, I hate your worship because it's meaningless because all you're doing is you're showing up on Sunday or Saturday, such as the case may be, but let's bring it to today. You show up on Sunday, you worship for an hour, you go home and you do nothing for the people around you. You do nothing to help this world. And so it's fascinating to think about, well, well, what does that mean? And then what, what Amos then says is, but he talks about justice and righteousness. With righteousness, this idea of equity, in spite of there being social difference, that poor or wealthy alike, you know, you look through all of the Old Testament, how many times throughout God's law is there provisions for the poor, for the widow and the orphan? And so that's an important part. And then there's also this sense of uh, justice, which are actions that that move towards righteousness and that our lives, our worship, everything that we do should be heading towards this unfailing long stream of justice and righteousness throughout our lives. And so this is all beautiful and heady and important. And what happens is towards the end, 
Uh, Amos finally gets to the seat of power. He heads to Bethel, which is supposed to be this temple. And basically in the end, it turns out to be sort of um, a city hall of sorts. And one of the priests who's a consort to the king just says, get out. We don't want to hear what you have to say. Uh, And so I think that poses an interesting question for us as we read Amos and as we think about that text. And it's to say, where is God and God's people, the prophets around us today, calling us to account in how we care for the poor, our justice and our righteousness? And where are we showing them the door, sending them back home to just go be farmers again? And I think that that is uh, a lot of what I hope to sort of reflect on as we go into to, into Sunday, because at the core of Amos is that is that deep question is what are you doing in the way that you treat those around you so uh, that's the that is the midweek deep dive again this is pastor adam anderson you can always check out our church old stone presbyterian church at www.oldstone.org you can also get our podcast which contain our sermon every week and also this podcast the midweek deep dive either through Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts, as well as our website. Again, I hope you all have a wonderful day. Look forward to seeing you on Sunday at 1030 for worship. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye.